Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Backstage Podcast. My guest this week is Harut Chatillion. Harut and I met in 2009 when he entered politics as the new municipal councillor for Bordeaux Carteville in Montreal. I almost immediately recognized how incredibly well-spoken and intelligent he was, but more importantly, his dedication to serving his citizens and the enormous respect he had for everyone around him. During the last municipal elections in 2017, he was unfortunate in seeking re-election, this time as borough mayor of Ahantse Carteville, but he was almost immediately recruited by the Caisse de dépôt et placement du Québec, a government institution initially created to manage Quebec's public pension programs that has now evolved into many subsidiaries, making it a key investor in major markets and asset classes. Harut is the director of a new division that is undertaking one of the most anticipated projects in Quebec, a high-speed electric railway that will connect Montreal to its neighboring cities. We discuss his journey through politics, the highs and the lows, dealing with defeat, and turning the page to this new and very exciting journey for him. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Thanks for being here, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, George. Uh, I know it's uh, it's quite the distance for you, but uh, every time someone comes actually to the studio, yeah, I, I appreciate it because I know that when people hear Brossard, they get like some allergic reaction. <laughs> no, look, but the the city is is growing. Uh, the the previously called suburbs are developing. They're, they're not even suburbs. There's an extension of the city. The city is as strong as the heart of the city. So mm. it's the business center of the city. But you also need you know, uh, residential neighborhoods on the island and you need residential development outside of the island. And it tenders to families, different class of citizens. So Brossard, Laval. It's no, all it's, Montreal. It, it, it's Montreal. And we're, we, when we go outside and when we present ourselves, we say Montreal. Montreal, yeah. and we have an urban metropolitan area of about 4.2 million people, and that, that's a quite a sizable area on North American scales. This, this is the funny thing, because a couple of years ago, there were reports coming out that a lot of people were just moving out of the island. It was too expensive and stuff. And lately, um, there seems to be m- more and more um, young people or young families, young entrepreneurs, you know, they're moving back into the city because of the proximity. We real we I noticed that especially in Park X and Villery, which has completely transformed. You have people mm-hmm. coming in. Of course, it's expensive, but they're buying and they're they're converting like these triplexes or these duplexes in like one house kind of project. Yeah, and they're just living there. And of course, it's a lot of money. But at the end of the day, you're in the middle of Montreal, so there's this wave people coming back into Montreal. I just think it's too expensive. I think I, I like where we are. So, look, the numbers that you speak of are. Are still the trends have not changed. There's so, still people so, 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 leaving so or coming. No, every year what you saw in the last couple of years, the trend is that you have more or less twenty thousand people leaving the island for the suburbs, wow. but those twenty thousand people are replaced by people from immigration. So because more or less Quebec receives uh, fifty thousand people a year, seventy-five percent of them choose the island of Montreal as their first destination. Yeah. And basically, you have outflow of people, families, and you have inflow of immigrants. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons that some neighborhoods had, you know, kind of like a hard time revitalizing because you have always these people that are first-time uh, citizens mm-hmm. and they stay in rental properties. When you stay in a rental property, revitalization is very difficult. Mm-hmm. But what we're seeing right now in Montreal is very, very similar to what we see in different cities. So basically, people coming back closer to their workplace to yeah. basically leverage the additional time and to make something of that additional time while taking into consideration that there is additional costs to basically having a foothold on the island. So it's basically a trade-off. Everybody has their own formula. Everybody has their own priorities. And it's something that, you know, it will evolve in the coming years. Well, you know, we're going to talk about the project that you're involved with now, which is certainly going to going to facilitate everything i think yeah uh, which is the rem i think it's probably the most anticipated project in quebec and considering everything it's advancing quite rapidly absolutely absolutely and and, and it's the it's the most anticipated project in quebec 
because it's the most sizable one of the last uh, 15 years, uh, 50 years. Uh, but uh, there's a need, a growing need for mobility. There's growing need for interconnectivity. There's growing need of capacity for logistics. So, so urban areas are transforming across the globe. And what we're seeing is something that, you know, uh, we used to say quite often uh, in the past, which is in 2050, 75% of the global population will live in urban areas. Mm -hmm. And by densification comes a series of, you know, specific priorities that governments need to address. So mobility is on top of the list. Yeah. Then you have particular strategies and policies for social development. You have particular strategies housing. for housing. Housing is key. I was in New Zealand uh, two weeks ago, mm -hmm. and New Zealand is going through a boom. Uh, immigration is oh, uh, yeah. booming. Uh, the urban areas are booming, but they have a housing issue, and they have a mobility issue too. So, 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 so the issues that we face here in Quebec are not very specific to us. And always the main kind of uh, problems when you tackle these issues are funding how do you fund the solutions and then how do you get the solutions you know above ground and then you start building and delivering because governments have very very good experience at operating things they're you know uh, most of them try to be very very lean and they operate they maintain they you know but when the time comes to build something from scratch it takes a very, very specific kind of expertise and uh, even a specific time, type of mental makeup because a developer is very different from an operator. Yeah. If you see that in business too. I was in business in the past and you know, there's very good operators in business. They can take an existing business and increase the, the margins and make everything lean, efficient. But to create a business from scratch takes a different type of uh, yeah. person. The same thing with infrastructure development. Wow. Uh, we're going to get to that because obviously it's the it's the main reason that I brought you here because it's obviously a very uh, interesting project. Yeah. Uh, but before that, um, let's just talk about you a little bit because you had a pretty interesting uh, career path, uh, which is how we met actually through politics. Um, but you weren't born here. You you immigrated here. Yeah. You were born in the in the Middle East. In yes, uh, Lebanon. Lebanon. Yeah. You came here how old? Uh, nine. Nine going into ten. So it was a vivid memory for you being an immigrant. Yes, yes, definitely, definitely. And my first uh, month as an immigrant was spent in Park X. Uh, Classic. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it was Outremont Street between Jerry and the other street, the Cross Danvers? Street. Sorry? Danvers? No. Uh, uh, Saint-Roch? Oh, Saint-Roch. Yeah. Is it, is, it, is it possible? Anyway, is it, it was well, on Outremont. Before Saint-Roch, it's Ball. So, yeah, yeah, more ball and uh, ball and Saint Rock. Yeah, 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 and I remember the, the, exactly even the first day. So I believe we arrived either on a Friday or a Saturday night. Mm. I think it was a Saturday night because I remember the next day, uh, getting up and walking uh, towards Jerry and actually going into a dépanneur to buy like a Mister Freeze. I believe I was with my dad and. Just for the you know the fun, the heck of it, my dad even bought a lottery ticket because it was his birthday or it was a day before his birthday. So yeah. I remember that uh, kind of scene very vividly, having that walk and seeing all those nice small you know single-family homes on Outremont, oh, yeah, and yeah. then seeing all the commercial kind of uh, you know businesses, uh, family businesses on, on Jerry. Oh, Jerry. Yeah. This uh, when was this? 1990. Okay, it's not it's not long ago. Long, almost thirty years soon, yeah. yeah. And but it's it, it's it, it's funny because you know to me I think of my parents and when we talk about immigration I, in the back of my mind it's the sixties seventies you know yeah. what I mean uh, of course eighties nineties I was doing other stuff and I wasn't really you know aware that these things were happening and now uh, especially the last eleven years when I was working in, in politics when you think of immigrants you there's that old generation of immigrants yeah and then you had that new wave so for me it's like oh, the old time immigrants and then <laughs> like the, the rookie immigrants if you want the the, the new timers look there's no uh, there's no new old in my head we're all immigrants because yeah. there's natives to yeah. which this land belongs and uh, i for one was very very interested in learning the history of quebec yeah and its first inhabitants uh, and i also was very very uh, you know admired in admiration of the explorers and 
there's debatable the ways these people explored and the way these people treated the indigenous people, mm-hmm. which is sometimes totally unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And even more than unacceptable, sometimes some rights, some wrongs need to be righted and corrected. Mm-hmm. That, 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 that's a given. But these explorers who set out to discover kind of new lands and new territories, I was, you know, always amazed by, again, it's a developer. It's somebody that goes into the unknown and goes into trying to find new lands. Uh, and coming back to newer generations of immigrants, it's also the same thing. Everybody leaves their kind of uh, motherland and in some cases uh, an adopted motherland because in the case of Armenians, you know, I came from Lebanon and our land is Armenia and uh, Lebanon hosted us after the Armenian genocide and we left for a reason. There was a war. Some people are leaving now for economical reasons. Mm -hmm. Some people leave even for climate change reasons and they come to Canada and Canada and Quebec especially is a very very hospitable land to newcomers and it's a land of opportunity but also most importantly equality and that's what we found and stability that for the first day i set foot here a 9 year old and the first thing that strikes you is running water oh, ele- yeah. electricity yeah. peace tranquility uh then you start school and you see that you know there's different kinds of people from different backgrounds that diversity and they uh, all live they all live peacefully they all live peacefully so 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 there's there's guys even that you know you you debate with about stuff that is happening back at the place that you left it doesn't happen here and the debate happens and then you turn the chapter while the same kind of people from different backgrounds or, or are, you just don't see that and i i understood that especially in park extension where you have i mean th- think of you know, first of all, it's such a small area, so mm. compact, uh, and you have Pakistanis living next to Indians, yeah. Bangladeshis living next to Pakistanis, Sri Lankans or Tamils living next to, Indians, and these people back home, they're they're killing each other, yeah. And yet here, it's not even a discussion. Uh, they, they don't they don't talk about these things. They coexist. They live they they live uh, peacefully amongst each other, uh, and that's honestly one of the characteristics that makes Park Extension very very unique unique and something that you know uh, that should not be taken also for granted because the roots of conflict are uh, unknown you know there's there's many studies of how a disagreement then turns to a conflict then the conflict turns into open kind of uh, conflict and it turns even to physical mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, collision of forces and and loss of life and uh, human tragedy yeah it, it, it it's it's quite fascinating how that kind of slippery slope operates. And to me, having been in uh, you know, my childhood in a, in a region where we saw our fair share of conflicts yeah. and there's still conflicts going on, yeah. uh, tranquility and peace is not something that I take for granted. So as an elected official also, I, I put an extra effort to preserve at all times this 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 notion of a society where there's open disagreements and even sometimes different opinions but, but respectfully it, but respectfully and it stays at that yeah. and and god knows we had those situations when i was elected in uh Kertzeville in mm-hmm. north of the city disagreements between citizens disagreements between you know uh people who have different beliefs different opinions so 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 that's something that you know and i sensed amongst the election elected officials that my view in regards to that status quo was very different from from theirs for them the status quo was a pillar of the society they lived in and they took that pillar as a given for me that is it's a pillar but it it's not a given it's a pillar that was achieved by a kind of a, a sum of decision a sum of contexts but it's not something that is permanent in my head. So mm-hmm. it has to be preserved at mm-hmm. all costs and nurtured. Yeah, I agree. How did you get involved in politics? Uh, when, when did you get elected for the first time? It was in early 2000? Uh, 2009. 2009. Yeah, and, and it's quite ironic because uh, about today or tomorrow is exactly 10 years when yeah. I became a candidate. Mm-hmm. So just to go back 10 years and 10 years, man, the time uh, flew by. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So So 10 years ago, here I am, a 28-year-old uh, professional, 
And I'm an engineer by, uh, you know, uh, trade. I studied engineering. I was fascinated by technology, fascinated by entrepreneurship. So I was an engineer and having worked a couple of years in the private sector, then worked also as an entrepreneur. And I was starting to gain a lot of uh, interest and curiosity about politics in general. And my curiosity was always geared at foreign policy. Mm -hmm. I was fascinated by, you know, what was going on in trade discussions and discussions, U.S. politics, uh, global politics, and not much interested in local politics for some reason. And again, and that was the given. That was the, the those are those were the facts back in two thousand and nine, and then you know uh, just a sequence of circumstances, and I found myself all of a sudden being kind of made aware that there was municipal elections in two thousand nine. Later on, at the end of the year, this was like some early early summer, and and I bumped into the right people, had the right conversations, and I was kind of sucked into this this world of unknowns and this world that has its own kind of code that has its own kind of energy and all of a sudden here i am kind of giving up everything that i've worked very hard to to achieve at a at a young age so giving up my engineering career giving up even uh, a business uh, interest and becoming from one day to another a candidate a candidate who has no kind of in-depth knowledge of politics, I never studied political science, uh, a candidate who has no kind of campaign infrastructure, no volunteers, no mm-hmm. funding, and also a candidate that is, you know, really kind of like those developers, you know, with a with a blank page, I don't even know where to start. So I'm just a candidate in the north of the city. I know that I have about 34,000 citizens to reach. And in front of me, I have about August, September, uh, October, so about three months, three months and a half uh, till the election kind of deadline. And I was okay with that idea. And I was excited about that idea. So it started about like that for me. And it was, you know, it was a, a very, very difficult decision to make. But once I made the decision, yeah. it was a very kind of peaceful moment to be in front of an unknown and to start something from nothing. It's funny because I, I fell into politics almost the same way because I, st- I actually studied politics, which uh, for me, the interest in politics was there. Mm-hmm. But like yourself, uh, I love foreign politics, following yeah. the European Union, uh, the US, uh, very little with Canadian politics. Yeah. And I just got into politics because, uh, you know, my, my boss who had one happened to know me. Well, I mean, we knew each other and uh, he needed someone to to kind of get involved and help more with the Greek community and stuff. And that's how I came in. And I had same, same here. Very little. I mean, the knowledge of politics is there because you follow. But practically, like on a practical level, how does this work? Uh, who do I call for that? How do we org- Like that was zero. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, people maybe tend to underestimate that aspect of it and tend to underestimate the mathematics of it. Oh my God. And that was fascinating to me. You know, that when you get basically kind of your first crash course at organization and they say, you know. It's such a huge process. Yeah. People don't understand. Yeah. They think you just put your name out there. You you take a picture, they put the poster up and then you just wait for the results. It's very, there's a lot of mathematics behind it. There's an enormous strategy that goes into campaigning. Yeah. And even after, like, you know, you get elected, your uh, your first objective is to get reelected. Yes. That's how you're thinking. Yeah. So, okay, it's down the line. It's four years, but, and then you start working backwards. So what do we have to do until, you know, that, that next election? What do we have to do? What do we have to build? And then you start, like, there's a plan that immediately goes into place. And that's why I think politics just sucks you in. I've spoken to so many people that are, that, that were involved in politics that ha- that wanted to leave and just change career paths because you get tired of politics. At some point, it consumes all your energy. Mm-hmm. You know, you make sacrifices with your family, with your friends. I mean, you're involved 100% in what you're doing. Yeah. And there were so many people that I've spoken to that just wanted to leave. You know, they did one, two mandates. They're like, okay, look, it's time to go. And they just couldn't. Yeah. Because th- what you're involved in, um, it's not like from one day to the next. It's such a long process. 
Like you, like you're you're a municipal counselor, and I've, even on the podcast, I've often said that you're the frame. You know, you're the direct link with the citizens because you're there, right? It's all yeah. the it's all the direct services. You want to bring a change, and it's not going to happen. You're not going to wake up the next day and say, "Okay, that park is built," or that road uh, we changed it, or we put the bike. It takes time. It takes time to think of what you're going to do, how to strategize, and you can't just pack up and leave because you, there's so many things that you're working on. And that's what I think sucks you into this job. And at the end of the day, when you see the result, you're like, look, look, look what we did. You know, it took four, five, 10 years, whatever. But it, it, there's a sense of accomplishment, I think, in politics that people, like you said, underestimate. And I think that's what keeps you going. And that's what sucks you in, regardless of all the bad things and, you know, the press and the stress and uh, the hours that you put in. There's something that keeps you going. Uh, in politics yeah and, and to me the, the the i think i believe the largest sacrifice apart from the the disproportionate amount of time that you put into the serving the institution so basically in the case of a counselor you serve the borough council you serve city council and different committees that you're in so so that takes a lot of time preparing to those takes a lot of time it takes a lot of time to being a good kind of developer and sometimes you know working on your ideas going and getting external expertise to to propose new ideas new projects for your community and the the the, the events the community events and the presence that you have to make so, so so all of that i'm okay with but the aspect now that i have the hands the the kind of the hindsight that i'm the most i would say uh i would say I, it would be one of the elements that would be kind of a stumbling block if ever. And I've said it before, I don't see myself making a return to politics anytime soon. And even down the road, I don't have any plans to, to run again in politics. And one of the elements that I, I underestimated was basically losing, in a sense, your sense of curiosity and your sense of kind of your perspective on things. You start looking at things from a political filter. Yeah. So you look at things and you look at even family situations from a political filter. Uh, you 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 manage your life from a political filter. Uh, your social media presence from a political filter. So everything you do and you go out to a restaurant and you're sitting and you're trying to enjoy your time with a loved one or with family and everything becomes kind of evolves around that political reality and in a way i believe that it starts making you less less critical about even some of the decisions you have to make as a politician or you have to make as a political leader because mm -hmm. your filter and your analysis is very reflex driven it's driven by instinct and you stop considering opinions that are outside of your world mm -hmm. So, 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 so that is, that's an aspect. And it didn't hit me the next day of leaving politics, but now almost two years later, and I say, wow, this, 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 this was a huge change operated over time. It, it, it's a bubble. That's what it is. Yeah. You're in a bubble. And as long as you're in that bubble, you think that everything revolves around politics. You know, everything revolves around what you do. Everything revolves around you know, you, you think, you, like you said, you think, what are people going to think now? Uh, how do I conduct myself? What do I say? Uh, like, everything has to be, like, so attention-driven. And I realized that, too. And it was different. It was difficult for me to leave. Well, leave. I, I didn't leave. I mean, <laughs> we lost the election. But you realize that what other people's normal life is has absolutely nothing to do with the normalcy we had in politics. And you know what made it even worse in the past couple of years? Mm -hmm. Social media. Yeah. And, and, and social media, uh, God bless uh, Facebook, God bless Google, God bless Twitter. You know, these tools are so powerful because they create, they create the multiplier effect, the mm -hmm. one to N effect. Yeah. So you can communicate with multiple people. Yeah. Yeah. You can organize quickly. But at the same time, it forced political, you know, people from people behind the scenes, people to the, the, the active politicians to manage that digital persona. Yeah. And, you know, you, you can have a persona that is very authentic, that can be very, I would say, even uh, appreciated by your citizens. 
but that persona sometimes is not a winning persona on social media. Mm-hmm. So you see a lot of these also politicians, not only in Quebec, Canada, Montreal, but in the world, yeah. working so hard to also create kind of like a digital persona. But that's the image that you need to to uphold, right? Because you're a public figure and it's like your passport, right? Yeah. It's like, who are you? Okay, Haruchi Tillian, I'm a politician. Let's look at the, the Instagram. Oh, yeah, look at that. He's all over, you know, shaking hands, kissing babies kind of thing, uh, cutting yeah. ribbons. And in the back of your mind, that's, that's the bubble that I'm talking about. You come, you, you know, you leave politics. And first of all, that transition is enormously difficult to just overcome. Yeah. And But slowly, slowly, you realize that, okay, it, it, it's it's a huge bubble. Like nobody cares like a, 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 a great majority of the people don't care. They don't follow. But while you're in politics, you're thinking that this is the most important thing. Yeah. Everybody's going to realize what we've done. And it's not usually the case. It's not usually the case. It, it's not the case. And, 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 and I believe that there's another element to it that we tend to also overestimate, that progress in society is achieved by multiple kind of vectors coming together and creating that progress. So you have, you know, the private sector that is the source of most innovation Mm -hmm. in society that comes up with new ideas, new inventions to make people's lives better, uh, healthcare better. So you have also pillars in society like like the media that that uphold sometimes, you know, uh, certain guiding principles of society. Sometimes they provoke certain debates. Mm -hmm. And, And when you're in politics, you sometimes lose sight that Apart from the political realm, there's other realms that operate on society mm-hmm. that also have an impact or sometimes sure. even a higher impact on the direction that society takes. Mm-hmm. And it's it's like in French, I used to say it, tu es convaincant et aussi convaincu. When you're in politics, you really believe in what you're doing mm-hmm. and you're also believable because you become so convinced about what you're doing. Yeah. But you lose that sight about that multiplicity of sources of kind of progress and sources of influence on the the track that history will take. I agree with you 100%. And, you know, I've had this debate with my wife because my wife, we met in politics and then she left politics way before I did. And she kept telling me, uh, she's like, what are you doing? Okay, another event. Like, (laughs) do you really need this? And in my head, it was like the most important thing. Yeah. Like, do you have to stay at the office until 9 p.m.? Like, what are you doing? What are you preparing? And and now I realize that, yeah, she was right. Like, I, you know, back in the day, it was the most important thing. But when I realize how much you've sacrificed and everything that you've lost, was it really worth it? I don't know. You know? Yeah. And, and honestly, people might be listening to this podcast and they, they might be saying, people from the political world, they might be saying, look, these guys... You know, they're saying this, they lost, but I lost also. And, yeah. and, and, and they, they've turned the page and it was part of their, I guess, heal, healing process to, to kind of turn the page and take this distance. But at the same time, what we're discussing here right now is not only something that is uh, specific to two guys who, who ran and lost in respective elections. You, you did last year, I did in 2017. Mm-hmm. It's, it's something I, I believe, just talking to you right now, that is kind of uh, resourceful and meaningful to people and people should take note. But again, it's very difficult when you're inside to realize this. Yeah. And even if you do, you don't want to start kind of this, you don't want to plant the seed in your head because it, it makes you also vulnerable because you have to be committed 100% mm-hmm. and to look, stay in the game. Look, the, the, there's, no, there's no point here to discourage anyone who's interested in politics. In fact, I think everyone should have an interest in politics because I feel like there's very little... Uh, engagement, especially from the youth. Yeah. Um, get involved, do it, experience it. Um, but it's just funny that once you come out, you realize that it's just another world. It's just another bubble, you know? Yeah. And, 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 and that's why maybe sometimes some of the greatest political stories are comeback stories. Yeah. Because somebody who leaves and comes back, comes back with this again, this renewed perspective. Yeah. And I, I, I don't say that because it happened with you. I'm definitely not at this point considering any political I'm, I'm office or any political, but to have that kind of perspective, it's very, very interesting mm-hmm. because if ever anybody has, gets that perspective and goes back in, now you go back in with, uh, you know, with a, with, a, with a renewed sense of what is important, what is not, and also you make things 
in a way that you don't repeat some of the mistakes you did mm -hmm. uh, when you were there. What were some of your challenges? My biggest challenge was, again, uh, campaigning. So um, I was not a natural campaigner and uh, very far from it. And uh, number one issue was basically, you know, just connecting with people. And uh, it's, 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 it's a tough uh, undertaking because here you are, in my case, 28-year-old. And, you know, 28-year-old 20, that was also in a, in a field where interactions are very limited. Mm -hmm. Engineering. <laughs> yeah. You know, and uh, that was the first biggest challenge. And, and, and I worked through it. I worked through it. And even till this day, I still work through it because it's something that for me, you know, it didn't come naturally. I was mm -hmm. not naturally kind of... Uh, like a sociable person. So, I am a sociable person, but I'm not an extrovert. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm an introvert. I yeah. remain an introvert. So, so, that, so, that, so, so working with that and also creating these bonds but i created a lot of lasting bonds with a lot of citizens a lot of partners so, so that was the biggest challenge in the beginning I, I believe the second one is then you know when you have that blank canvas so what do you do now that you've gained the trust of the people yeah what do you do with that trust and, and, and to me you know everything has to make sense i'm not there to just sit on a seat and then call the day and go home so I found it very difficult in the beginning uh, developing ideas and not to see them kind of come into fruition quickly. So, so, so that was the second part, I would say, for me. Which is entirely normal, by the way, right? It's, it's normal. But coming, coming from your background where everything is, I don't want to say mechanical, but it's like, okay, we got to do this. Let's go. 48 hours. We got to have it done. Yeah. Like that, <laughs> no, but that's how it is. Yeah. The, the private sector is just so like results oriented yeah. that it's like right away. Okay, let's get that. Let's, and things get done. And it, and it took me a good, I would say, 18 to 24 months to, wow. fi to figure out how things worked. And, you know, sometimes that how you're supposed to line your chess pieces up to get things done for yeah, you yeah. and how also you buy time. And, and, and it's sad to say that sometimes, you know, some things, you know, this is going to take time. You don't necessarily communicate the exact time it's going to take, but you learn how also to manage expectations. Yeah, so, yeah. So, so, so that's the second piece. The third, that was the most eye-opening one for me. And, and this, and, and, and I feel weird talking about it because I haven't talked about it very often. And there's more politics inside politics than politics outside <laughs> yeah. of politics. Yeah. So, so, so you know, the, it's one thing to be a candidate and to put everything on the line to win a seat. It's one thing to become an elected official and then learn the ropes and develop the thing. But it's another thing. Navigating to, in that political environment. Exactly. Yeah. And it applies as much as it applies to the relationship with the opposition or oppositions, but also it implies within to, your own uh, within your own party. I've said it countless times, Harut. You your, do. Your, your worst enemy is not across the floor; it's within your own family. It's within uh, your own look, team. I'm, and I, you're probably I'm, not going to say I'm, it. I'm going to knock on the wood. I, I don't think I had many enemies, and you know, uh, I, I don't know who, who was it that said Churchill. You know, yeah, make sure you don't leave anybody indifferent. So I, I had, and I still do, now on, on a friendly manner. Very, you know, uh, very important disagreements with political colleagues, but I'm I'm the one that you know once a debate happens and whatever decision is made, I'm okay to yeah. to turn the page, and there's no, you know, uh, you know, there's no hurt feelings. Yeah, and also the political function that I occupied almost two years after taking office uh, allowed me to become that person I, I i have those qualities inside of me but i have i became speaker of the city council yeah. after two years in uh, in council and that kind of put me in a situation where i had to be very neutral neutral yeah. and also be kind of a a, a very a reliable ear that that listens to all parties and all counselors yeah and it's it was an eye-opening experience but again e e even that managing the relationships and managing the politics inside of politics so that, that 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 was the third challenge and and the fourth one which is very recent to me so fourth and fifth and we would kind of <laughs> complete it off and we can even write a book one two three four five with this so, <laughs> yeah. so so one is the candidate second is the elected official third politics inside of politics fourth is 
you know, to be an executive inside of politics. So, you know, when you have the executive branch, File. yeah. So, so, so you have it at city council, and you have it in government. So, you have people that are designated to become pivots in specific fields. So, so, so that too is is a is a is a beast of its own. Mm-hmm. We won't go into the detail, but it, it's. And the fifth is how do you manage defeat in politics? Because nothing you do as a candidate, nothing you do as an elected official, nothing you do as an executive, nothing you do as a political operators prepares you for what defeat yeah. brings. Yeah. And and defeat brings different things to different people. Some people take it very personal. But to me, the the I would say the most challenging part about political defeat is how you basically kind of uh, close the books mm-hmm. and, and, and close the books in terms of the personal relationships that you shaped in terms of the people who supported you, close the books in terms of the partners in the communities, even close the books in terms of your own kind of mental makeup and predispositions. And, and, and that process, is, nothing prepares you to no. that. And, and, and nobody could even mentor you because you, you live it differently. Yeah, I, yeah. I, for me, it was as far as the personal aspect was concerned, I was okay with it in the split second that the decision became official. And, you know, it was like 1130. I was during the campaign and election night. I was one of the races that was very close till very late. But the moment that the result became official, I said, you know what? As far as Harut, the individual is concerned, I turned the page. But then how does Harut, the candidate in regards to his volunteers, how does Harut, the candidate in regards to his family, how does Harut, the candidate in regards to his, his friends? So, 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 so that is something, you know, uh, somebody should write a book about that because there's so much that goes into it. Yeah, I don't know if you agree with it. Yeah, I agree 100%. And I mean, you know, 10 years, I mean, you did what, eight years? Eight years, yeah. Uh, I, I was there for 11, but... You build this um, ecosystem mm-hmm. ar- around everything that you do, and mentally, even though you accept what happened, you almost feel like you're leaving behind this whole chunk of your life that you were so involved with. And I think that process is what. And I told you, even you know, before we went live, there were so many people that were much more upset about us losing than I was because, you know, being in politics for for this long, you realize that. Defeat is part of the. It's in the agenda. Like yeah. it can happen. I mean, if you don't, if if you don't think that you can lose, you either didn't get the memo or you're in the wrong field. Like it's on the agenda. You yeah. need to consider it at all times. So, in the back of my mind, and probably you know a lot of people that that worked or ran in for office, it, it's there. So it's a reality. So like you said, I mean, the, the election, the results are out, and you you know you 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 accepted the results, you know, very humbly, and you're like, okay, that's it. That's you know, you accept it. But, you know, 24 hours later, when you wake up and you're not that person anymore, it, it, there's a there's a whole mental thing that happens. You know, it takes time. The transition isn't easy. Yeah. And it's not only you. And I mean, me, I, I was I was never elected. So for me, there's almost no impact. You know, for me, it's just the work that I did uh, that kind of made me feel like, damn, you know, I'm not going to be there to see this, you know, or that thing that we were working on. So it's more on that aspect, but I've, you know, I've spoken to other uh, people that were elected or other staffers that lost their position. And there's an attachment that is there and that suddenly it's not, it's not yours anymore. You know, so that I think to come to terms with that, um, you know, it takes a, it takes some time. And like you said, people deal with it differently than others. Um, But, you know, look, turning the page, I, I don't think you can really turn the page. Like, see, I'm involved in other stuff now, but uh, still, you know, like there's something that, you know, my ear is still there. You know, like you, know, you still wake up in the morning. Oh, what's going on? You know, there's still that reflex that was there for all that time. I don't know about you. Uh, I just feel like, OK, what's going on? There's nothing you can do, right? But it's just that interest that you can't lose. I mean, it's, you've been there for eight years. Uh, other people have done more. It, it, it's almost impossible to kind of let that reflex go. So, yeah, so so there's this attentive ear that you have, you know, that uh, kind of keeps you still close to what's happening. I don't know. I don't know about you if, uh, if you're still following. I mean, you have to because what you're doing now. Yeah, I do follow. But, uh, again, it's everybody has a different way of transitioning into – Know, becoming a private citizen again mm-hmm. and as far as i was concerned uh, one aspect was a very kind of 
tricky aspect, which was when does the collective you become the individual you? Mm-hmm. Because acting for the greater interest of society and acting for the greater interest of your community is is one thing. But when you leave politics, now all of a sudden your number one priority becomes you again and your family and your life, your future. And and doing that transition is a, is a tricky one because, like I said, when you're out of politics, the people who are around you, they go through kind of like a and, – and they mourn your, your yeah. absence. Yeah. And, and, and to me, it was kind of very sometimes even comedic. And I don't want to underestimate the, the emotion and the, the seriousness of everything. But some people I, – I, I, I told some of my friends and I told my wife when I discussed with some people, it's as if I had died in a way. Yeah. And it's like I'm listening to my eulogy, <laughs> but I'm still there. And there's a lot of, you know, uh, years in front of me, and there's a lot of interesting things that are going to happen in front of me. So, so, so that's one. And what helped also in, in my case to kind of turn the page definitely is I physically left uh, Montreal and to take on um, a challenge uh, overseas mm-hmm. for many months. So, so that was kind of like a breaking point after that where. You know, yeah. the the turn the page was definitely turned, and then when I came back, back in August of uh, next year to take on this mandate at the case, so things had gradually shifted. So 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 the, so the shift happened in many kind of phases. Yeah. So the case, the depot, um, uh, takes you in. Uh, for for the people listening that don't know, the, the Caisse de Depot has undertaken one of the biggest and most anticipated projects, I think, in Quebec, which involves the creation, the the the, the development of um of an electric uh, high speed uh, rail, yeah, rail. Uh, and that's the the division that you're responsible for. Yeah, so I'm I'm, I'm in I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm inside a, a kind of a subsidiary of the Caisse de Depot that is fully. Uh, fully owned by the Caisse de Depot that has the mandate to develop infrastructure projects. And since August, end of August last year, I'm an executive director there in a, in a very, with a very specific uh, mandate. So the mandate, uh, as far as I'm concerned, is you have three pillars to infrastructure development. So you have the financials, mm-hmm. you have the engineering, but also you have all of the, the integration of the infrastructure and in its conception phase and its development, construction, and even operation phase with government institutions. Mm-hmm. So I kind of handle that pillar is, 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 is my responsibility. So I have teams that uh, help on that side. And also I partake with our engineering specialists and our financial specialists in kind of developing cross-sectional solutions to issues or even developing cross-sectional propositions to new projects mm-hmm. so so it's a very unique um, responsibility very very interesting uh, very high paced and very promising because it's a it's it's a blend of expertise that came together for this specific project but once this project is done it can be used for anything to address issues here in Quebec or even overseas mm-hmm. or even in the rest of Canada it's interesting what you're saying because Unlike most projects here in Quebec, this one seems to have taken off really rapidly and it's evolving rapidly as well. I remember when it was announced, I think it was in 2017, and they were saying that it'll be completed by 2020. I remember laughing. Yeah. I was like, ah, three years, yeah. impossible. What are they talking about? Uh, it started a little bit later, I think. Yeah. But you're on schedule. I think it's, uh, what, you're going to be completed in 2021 or 22, yes. something like that? 21, yeah. First part, yeah. Uh, and I mean, I live in the South Shore, so I see these things every time I cross over into Montreal. I see these things going up, and it's really moving quickly. Yeah. And I'm happy about that, honestly. For the first time, uh, it's really going well. It's moving quickly. And again, uh, coming back to one of the concepts that I initially spoke about, which is you know, how do we protect the status quo and in a different realm in the infrastructure side? one of my jobs on a daily basis with my other colleagues is to protect this momentum because a lot of things can slow down momentum and a lot of things can basically bog down a project and a one day delay becomes a one week delay mm-hmm. and a one week delay becomes a one month delay and so on. So we, we don't take this kind of momentum for granted. 
And when we have issues and issues of different kinds, we mobilize quickly and we try to address it and find solutions to them uh, very, very quickly too. And, and, and what makes this project and the way the makeup of the team that runs this project different is it's an agile work environment. And there's a lot of cliches people always talk about now, agile development, agile management, but it's really agile in the sense of you have all these experts from different backgrounds that came together, that were brought together by the case for this uh, project. And they sit together in a very open concept office. And on a daily basis, their number one priority is get, to get this thing done. So when yes. there's issues, yeah. people come together. No need to you know, call somebody's secretary to say, is he free for a meeting uh, next Monday at 9 a.m.? Let's go have breakfast. No, there's an issue. You get together, you have a discussion, and you kind of identify the what are the, the the root causes and then bam you try to find solutions to them you think this will open the door to future projects in the way that we do things or the, the way that things are done here in quebec it does certainly open um, a door for future opportunities it's a model that is needs to be also fine-tuned and that's what we're doing because it's it's a model that was never tested before mm -hmm. uh, to have uh, an institution that is mainly institution involved in you know, uh, nurturing and developing the savings of people and their retirement and then becoming an infrastructure developer. So the jury is out. I think we have a responsibility first and foremost to deliver, to do it on time, on budget. And also we have responsibilities now to even study for future projects. But will the model be around in 50, 100 years? I certainly believe so. But uh, time will tell. You think it's going to expand a little bit or you're just going to, it's going to stay as it is uh, designed at the at the moment because it, it occupies mostly the west part of Montreal. It connects South Shore yeah. to Montreal, the North Shore to Montreal, and mostly the west, which we know there was a huge need, right? I mean, the west was deficient in a lot of uh, public yeah, transport. Eight, almost eighty-five to ninety percent of families in the West Island have more than one car. I think they're very car-centric yeah. development, uh, and yeah, they they definitely needed kind of an influx of but public even, transit. But even the even the mobility from the airport now. To like anywhere 20 minutes to downtown 20 hours a day seven days a week 365 so like, so, so, so that is a game changer for sure it puts montreal on the map because you, you you travel to big cities and every big city has that yeah and and and, and not only that you know uh I, I i i see already the opportunities it's it's amazing i see for example somebody who lives in park x who now, if he or she wants to work in the West Island, has to definitely own a car. Yeah. And owning a car, you know, there's certain recurring expenses to owning and maintaining a car. But it's also frustrating. Frustrating. And, 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 and to go to work in the West Island, with oh. the REM, what you do is you get at the Metro uh, Jean Talon or the Castelnau on the blue line. Mm -hmm. uh, you get off at Edouard Montpetit, take the REM, and bam, you're either at Fairview, you're either at the Kirkland Shopping Center, you're either at the source where there's a big industrial. So, so in terms of economic development, everybody's focusing in on the real estate aspect and saying, wow, real estate on the South Shore has yeah. increased 28.6%. Uh, vacancy rates in the West Island are down to 1% for industrial properties. But in terms of labor and in terms of getting skilled workers or even uh, general workers to, to job opportunities, in terms of creating economic clusters like the airport is going to develop big time with yeah. this project and it, also the connectivity between the two universities anybody right now who works at the university of montreal that also wants to go and teach at mcgill has to go around the mountain it takes about what 20 minutes 25 yeah. minutes yeah with the rem three minutes bam you get into the metro uh, the, the the metro of the rem at edouard petit you get off at mcgill station three minutes later you're at the university and you can teach at both universities. You can research at both universities together. So it creates endless possibilities that we don't even, we're just scraping right now the surface of these possibilities that mobility will create. And last but not least is reducing congestion. Yeah. So congestion, if you reduce that congestion and then you fill up that congestion with other cars, it's not you're not solving a problem you're not solving a problem it's not a sustainable model but if you're reducing congestion and then you're re reusing that additional capacity to add buses 
and buses that run more fluidly and that don't get stuck in traffic. If you're using that, uh, using that space that you created by removing cars from the highway and giving it to logistics and giving it to, you know, create connectivity between the port. And so, so, so there too, there's endless possibilities, but it needs to be used very wisely because tomorrow morning, if we move, I don't know, uh, the REM will remove 150 million car kilometers a year on the roads. But if you fill that up with another 150 million, you didn't solve the congestion yeah, issue. Exactly. Um, look, I think everyone that's come to Montreal or that lives in Montreal is just frustrated f from one year to the next. Uh, all you see are, I had Francesco Miele, who was your, uh, who was your colleague. Uh, Saint-Laurent, yeah. Saint -Laurent. <laughs> And I told him, Frank, man, what's going on? It feels like the snow melted and the cones just grew. <laughs> yeah. You know, as soon as the last snowflake disappeared, boom, the cones, the cones were up. Yeah. It's just ridiculous. But now, in terms of the infrastructure for the REM, this this is all new infrastructure. Are you are you going to use existing uh, very, railway? Very interesting or? question. So 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 one of the key issues in developing. Uh, mass transit and especially mass transit that uses surface kind of uh, transportation means is the rights of way. So rights of way is, you know, where, where do you put your train? And with the REM, part of the work that was done prior to my arrival, which is quite unique, is that they minimized the expropriations and they maximized the reuse, the reuse of existing infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So you see these pillars appearing uh, appearing in the center of the highway. You see them in the West Island on the side of the highway. You see them reusing kind of the existing two mountains line. Uh, you see them reusing in the downtown core, kind of the overpass that leads into the central station. So all of these went into the planning and the design of the network, and it was just very, very complex work, and that was done in a record time by the engineers at the REM office. Because, I mean, for for me, going into Montreal, everything is new here. I mean, we see the ramps and everything. I mean, it's going to cross through the, the new bridge, which is fantastic. But in the middle of Montreal, I mean, you would imagine, what, what are they going to do? Like, how are they going to build this thing? Like, from downtown, you know, the, the, the train is going to go down to Bonaventure. And then how, how does it get to the North Shore? The tunnel. So it uses the Two Mountains Line tunnel. Okay. It's a 5.2-kilometer tunnel. Okay. And then inside the tunnel... That's one of the biggest engineering feats of the project. There's two new stations that are created. Because in the past, anybody that took the the the, the train to uh, Saint-Laurent and Laval and Saint-Dorothée and to Mountains, there was no stops between downtown and Ville-Mont-Royal. Yeah. But there you have two kind of very strategic uh, communities that will have... Uh, a great deal of interest accessing mass transit. So one of them is the Outrepont community, Outrepont Côte Neige, and the second one is the people in the core of downtown because a lot of people in the past used to take the train, get to Bonaventure, and then they get off Bonaventure and take the metro to go to their workspace, which is near maybe McGill College, yeah. near St. Catharines. So by creating a station, REM station, in the heart of downtown, inside the tunnel, you're adding to the endless possibilities of interconnectivity. Mm -hmm. And it also, the fact that we're adding these two stations also is a very, very key driver for interconnecting with the Montreal Metro. Because by adding these two stations at Edouard Montpetit, you're basically connecting with the blue line. So that's why, that's why I spoke about mm -hmm. people living in Park X, working in the West Island, and even maybe people living in Park X and working on the South Shore at Distrand. Oh, yeah. And now doing that, with a very fixed amount of time that it takes them to transit between both points and in a very you know, affordable way. And the other interconnections with the Green Line. So anybody that takes the rim can get off at McGill Station, take the Green Line and either go east or west. So all this interconnectivity is also a huge gain for the transit in Montreal. There was a lot of, um, I don't want to say chaos, but there was a lot of voices coming uh, once everything was announced about the east end of Montreal and how um, it was left kind of not abandoned, but I mean there was so much focus put on the west of of Montreal. Uh, what's happening on the east side? That's why I asked you before: Is there any potential that this might extend past, or it's going to stay as is? The, the government has exercised uh, its right to 
proposed to us uh, three new study areas. So we're studying as we speak uh, possibilities of uh, the REM being extended to the center of Laval. So we service the west of Laval uh, in the REM 1.0 center of Laval. The government has asked us also to study the possibility that we extend the REM from Brossard to Saint-Jean-sur-Richelieu and oh, Chambly. And also the government has asked us to study uh, a completely new transit uh, system that will service the east, but very specific part of the east, because the east, you have now the blue line being extended all the way to Anjou, and you well, have the green wait, line. Let's wait and see if it's going It will happen. It will happen. <laughs> it will happen. Keep the faith. Yeah. yeah, but you have the blue till Anjou coming up, and you have the green that goes all the way to Radisson and Honoré Bourgain, but, but it is very close to the southern kind of, kind of mm -hmm. flank yeah. of the east end. So in between, you have populations that don't ac have access yeah, like to rdp the, which is further north yeah rdp yeah. doesn't have access so people even in between this uh the saint michel line the blue line and the the green line this this interesting public and plus you have the people of montreal nord and saint leo and all those areas so the mandate the government gave us is to study a new network that would service the east then kind of go sideways and go up and interconnect with the green and the blue and then service the community in Montreal North. Mm -hmm. So all of this is a very complex undertaking. So as we speak right now, we're studying the different possibilities. Uh, the the one thing that was interesting for, uh, to me when they announced the REM, obviously, I mean, the initial design, I mean, you're connecting so many uh, uh, you know, so many parts of uh, Montreal and the surrounding areas, but this was one issue that I always had in the back of my mind. I was thinking, okay, is this going to stay like this? Is it going to expand? It would be interesting to have, I mean, we have the metro system, but how fun and how interesting would it be to have like simultaneously the development of uh, alternative uh, methods of transport, like for example, this one, you know? Uh, and, and it's good that, I, that there's this openness and that you're studying, um, you know, all these other uh, potential uh, infrastructure. Scenarios, yeah. Scenarios. Yeah. And this is obviously funded by the government. There's investments from the, the Caisse de Depot as well. Absolutely. So it's, 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 the model is quite a unique in the sense that the government in the REM is a shareholder and not a lender. And they then give us a subsidy. They, mm -hmm. they, they, they invested in the REM project. The Caisse invested in the REM project. And the federal government gave us, through the Bank of Infrastructure, a loan that, will, that needs to be paid off in 15 years' time. So the makeup of the financial kind of structure is quite unique and different. What was the total budget? Six point three billion. So it's very different from traditional public um, infrastructure projects that are funded one hundred percent by the the government. Mm -hmm. The um, the the cost once everything is done, it, it's going to be a unique uh, cost, like uh, depending on whether you live in Montreal, North Shore, South Shore, it'll be the same. It's uh... so, 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 so that's an interesting question. So you have the REM will charge the transit authority 72 cents per kilometer passenger. Okay. But then the transit authority has to basically say how much of that 72 cents the user pays, how much, how much of it the city pays and how much of it, it, it gets paid through government subsidies. Because right now, in no transportation method, the user pays 100% of the cost. Mm -hmm. So if you take the bus today, the fee you're paying to take the bus is not... It's a fraction of what it actually it, costs. It's yeah. a fraction of what it actually costs. And these people have to understand this because we're quite privileged here in Montreal and that we have very affordable public transit. In other jurisdictions, it's much more expensive mm -hmm. to take public transit. So, so in the case of the REM, the authorities will have to decide how they kind of manage this, the shares, but they have an interest that this thing uh, works because for them too, it kind of relieves the existing networks, existing bus routes, because them too, they, they, they cannot sustain the growth. We saw recently uh, the Metro of Montreal, again, 5% increase in the number of uh, transit users. The bus systems in Brossard and Laval in, in Montreal are almost uh, saturated. So, mm -hmm. so, 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 so this is going to be a key component of the whole thing too. And uh, the authorities, as we speak, are working on it. Okay, it hasn't yet been determined. No. 
Uh, in terms of uh, advancement, completion, and all that, like we said, everything is on schedule. Everything will be done by 2021. Right now, that is the, the target, and we're working in that direction. Are, are, are there stations going to open before the completion of the whole network, or are you going to wait for everything to be completed? Well, we, we will go by phases. So yeah. the phase one is South Shore, 2021. Mm-hmm. Phase two is the kind of partial opening of the central branch till Zuruiso, uh station. And then phase three, four, five, it's airport, West Island, and the Montagne. And they will be open gradually in 2023. Okay. So, so, so that's pretty much in a nutshell the, the kind of two initial phases and then three, four, five, which will happen more or less simultaneously. Yeah, that's amazing. It's good because it costs much cheaper, obviously, than developing a metro system, right? Where you have to dig tunnels and look, uh, capacity is a very very uh interesting debate because when you when you analyze transit projects the first thing you look at is okay is is there the need is there a demand for the service yeah. so you, you analyze the demand then once you analyze the demand you you look at different technologies how do you service the demand uh, some demand you can service with a dedicated bus lane some demand you need to service with maybe you know fleets of uh, carpooling or car sharing or collective taxis and some demands need absolutely access to frequent reliable and you know highly available mass transit systems once you make that decision that you need a mass transit system then you look at different options and the different options have different pros and cons so if you look at the sub uh, the subway for example it is on a dedicated route it has a much higher cost of construction, a much higher cost of maintenance, but it it offers certain possibilities in terms of protecting, uh, you know, the existing kind of makeup of the city because you don't have to expropriate or you do very yeah. little expropriation, yeah, and you don't quote unquote come and set up these very, you know, sizable surface infrastructure. So, so there's a plus to that, and it has a very good commercial speed. If you look at the REM, the REM has a very, very, very interesting commercial speed, about 57 kilometers on average an hour. Uh, it has a very interesting cost of per kilometer that is almost maybe one ninth or one eighth of a subway system. But on the flip side, it has to use either existing rights of way or we have to create rights of way. So to create the rights of way and to have that kind of dedicated right of way we need to construct these kind mm-hmm. of uh, aerial pillars. Mm-hmm. So, so this is not unique to Montreal. It's been done in uh, Saudi Arabia. It's been done in Vancouver. I went and I visited and I tested the system uh, in, in in Vancouver, the Canada Line. So, so, so yeah. The, so, so again, planning these projects from the perspective of the developer. There's so many criteria that go into establishing the final project is it's, it's incredible and it's fascinating for me to be on this side and to see how these things work because as an elected official you know god knows the amount of time sometimes that we said we need to have this project but you don't necessarily know why this project is not happening everything now, it takes yeah everything yeah. it takes and so so now i'm very privileged to to have that kind of insight and to have a very informed conversation about these things uh, with you and with your listeners I was going to say something because we were mentioning Jim Bass uh, before we went live, who is the, the mayor in the West Island, who seems to have some issues there uh, with the REM, but that's more with the provincial government that they're not allotting uh, any parking spaces uh, for him. And now that you mentioned, you know, I'm, I'm on the other side. I was wondering <laughs> how many arguments and how many exchanges you've had with former colleagues about your reality and theirs now. Uh, look, we, 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 part of my Kind of responsibility is also to keep this conversation, keep the dialogue with the, the municipal stakeholders, and I think part of uh, the 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 insight that I have as being an elected official myself. So I I understand the language that they're speaking, and sometimes even I understand what they're confronted with. But it also is my responsibility to make them understand kind of the the constraints and the prerogatives that we have to work with at this project. So to kind of, in a nutshell, and to kind of oversimplify a part of what I do is I'm a translator. Mm -hmm. I translate political speak 
to people who are very project and engineering and commercial driven. And I, I translate Their commercial the project <laughs> and development speak to politicians. And somewhere along the line, I try to create consensus and I try to build, uh, you know, uh, come up with solutions to real issues that need to be tackled at this phase of the project. It's, uh, it's definitely something that we're all looking forward to. I'm not going to take up um, more of your time. Uh, thanks for coming, man. I appreciate it. Thank and, you for uh, having me, George. Yeah, I, I'm I'm happy that you're happy where you are, and uh, you know the the political life, whether it comes or not in the future, I'll uh, I'll definitely be there. And uh, if you need anything, I mean, you know, I'm there. I, I won't say yes because then people will see a hint <laughs> that, that yeah. I'm, I'm actually considering. So people are gonna go crazy on Twitter there. No, yeah. no, no. no. <laughs> Thank you for Harut's having me. Harut's come back, and good luck with everything. Thanks a lot, man. I appreciate it. Merci.